This is the BBC. Crowds seem to be getting anything bigger and angrier. They're stretched all the way in that direction, thousands. We won't go home. When was the last time you stood up and said no? When you said enough is enough, change must come. When you took to the streets, or your laptop, your phone. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and this is Seriously. And today's story is about protest. With the click of a button or a touchscreen, you can sign a petition, log a concern, select attending on a march. I think people see themselves as activists if they're clicking to sign a petition or if they're retweeting something. You know, that's not going to cut it these days. Journalist Zoe Williams is our guide down the long road to change. There's nothing like it, is there? Arriving in a square, heads and shoulders as far as you can see, more people arriving from every direction. It looks like a festival. But it smells like history being made. History and sometimes a bit of weed. There is no feeling on earth like the gathering together of strangers with the same passions, the same sense of their collective power, insistent like a crackle, like an itch. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. I protest against injustice. I protest against political corruption. Why? We are the people too! We are united free! This occupation is our neighbor! I'm going to look back on the protests of the recentish past. Look at what worked, what didn't. Solidarity, brutality. Who came out feeling like a failure? Who felt on top of the world? I want to know about the victories we may not have recognised at the time. But I also want to take a clear-eyed look at failure through the eyes of the activists who lived it. I've been protesting since before I had a choice, standing in Hyde Park in the 1980s, listening to mildly-spoken vicars describe the precise aftermath of a nuclear attack. I never had any illusions about getting immediate results. But recently I've been troubled by a different idea. That protest itself might be counterproductive. That it gives us a sense of achievement we don't really deserve. That, in a social media age, the sheer ease of organising undermines the sincerity, turns it all into a cacophony. There's even a formula to follow. You should imagine a viral loop 
three steps, you know, organized in a little circle. Anders Kolding Jorgensen is a Danish psychologist focusing on digital communication. He's cracked this simple recipe for activists to recruit followers. First of all, it has to do with cognitive psychology. I need to be able, without really thinking a lot, to understand what this is about. The next step, you need to actually connect to my emotions, where I say, wow, I feel that this actually is an injustice. Then we just need to complete the final step is, how would I look if I shared it with this with other people? Would it be problematic for me? Or is it something I feel that, strongly feel that I need to warn the world about? In the few seconds where I haven't decided whether I want to actually start my brain and do mental processing work. This is like social marketing. Engaging with people's impulse reactions, their instincts, short-circuiting complication. If you take a recent spontaneous uprising, the protest against Trump's Muslim ban at the start of the year, it's quite dispiriting how clearly you could break it into its three-stage process. Friday 27th of January, 4.39pm. The Oval Office. President Donald Trump signs an executive order. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. It's Holocaust Remembrance Day. The emotional response is triggered. Saturday, 28th of January. Early hours. The New York Immigration Coalition create a Facebook event. The New York Immigration Coalition are official endorsers of rapid response action. Today, 11 a.m., at JFK Terminal 4, outside arrivals. Please spread the word. Saturday, 28th of January, 11 a.m., JFK Airport. A dozen protesters assemble. 3 p.m., the protesters are now in their hundreds. Sunday, 29th January, the hashtag no ban, no wall has spiralled through Twitter. Thousands are gathered at airports, cities and parks across the United States, from Washington to Los Angeles to Detroit. Five p.m. Donald Trump defends his ban. It's not a Muslim ban, but we're totally prepared. It's working out very nicely. You see it at the airports. You see it all over. It's working out very nicely. But by then, the hashtag has gone global. Journalist Owen Jones is the firestarter in the UK. I kick-started it just by sending a tweet early hours of Sunday saying, let's all take to the streets on Monday. And it just exploded. And mainstream media brought some kerosene. We're in Birmingham, right in the city centre at Victoria Square, where in just a few minutes, a protest against Donald Trump's so-called Muslim ban will begin. Thousands were in attendance in all corners of the UK from London to Edinburgh. There is an unsettling idea that authoritarians love protests. They hate to be ignored. They see demonstrations as a badge of honour. They use civil disorder as a justification for their iron rule. I look at Trump's face and I do not see him worrying about those demonstrations. Rather, he actively drew energy from those protests. It is extremely rare to be able to trace a direct result from a protest to an outcome. 
But we tend to assume that even invisible effects take us in the right direction. And I wonder if that's always the case. Protesting has a role. I think it's always a false debate, this, because it's either protest drives everything or it drives nothing at all. Owen Jones, journalist and activist. We've got to look at social change and political change as being a multi-pronged offensive. It includes everything from marching in the streets, it includes peaceful civil disobedience, it includes strikes, it includes polite letters to MPs. You know, people <laughs> yeah. disparage that, but it has a role. Yeah. It's not one or the other political change. All the way through history, the rights and freedoms that often we take for granted today were won by people organising in a very diverse range of ways. I don't think as a gay man I would have the rights that I have today were it not for the people who who marched. So when people disparage marching, what they're trying to do is make us say, prove that it is the sole driving force of all political change. We're not claiming that. We're saying that it's one instrument which has had an impact. Do you ever feel that there's a danger of romanticising struggle? We sort of love the idea of the arduousness of it. I think there's a danger of romanticising struggle because, it, you know, it, I mean, the clue is in the name. <laughs> I, I think it's right to remember the sacrifice and pay homage to those who fought because isn't just because it's the right thing to do to remember the suffering, but also it shows how social change happens, that it's not victory, success, victory, success, victory, success. It's often setback, defeat, setback, defeat, setback, defeat, then victory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's the most successful movement you would say you've been involved in? Blimey. Well, the poll tax movement, I suppose. I mean, I was part of that as a five-year-old child, um, which included both demonstrations and civil disobedience. The crowd now is pushing down from Trafalgar Square. The two crowds are meeting and in between are a line of policemen. They are now trying to get out of the way as quickly as they can. There are cans and bottles and stones flying. Who can really look back and say that was a failure? It forced the government into a dramatic U-turn on what was a central piece of legislation. It's in the nature of a protest, because it's organic and not institutional, that you wouldn't be able to make direct causal links. But some things are pretty clear-cut. On the 21st of December, 1989, a leader previously considered unassailable turned out to be immortal after all. Bucharest, Romania. Nicolae Ceausescu held a mass meeting on the balcony of the Central Committee building. Normally, crowds would listen in respectful silence to this dictator's speeches for hours. But not this time. Just two minutes in, the crowd are not applauding, they're booing. It's a chilling moment. Ceausescu's shock, horror and fear is written across his face. The vocabulary of his authority isn't working. Protesters gathered together overnight. They stood defiant in front of tanks and machine guns. Eventually, they stormed Ceausescu's exquisite palace. And the Ceausescu's were captured, put on trial and executed. This is Radio Bucharest, Romania. 
Listeners following by great popular manifestations in the capital city of Romania, Bucharest, and all over the country. Today, December 22nd, 1989, the dictatorial regime of Nicolae Ceausescu was overthrown. To bring down your leader, shoot him, change the destiny of your nation forever, that is a pretty atypical experience. Far more often, a protest movement will work like the devil to get the nation's attention, yet leave no traceable impact on those in power. The Black Lives Matter movement, still in its genesis, is one example. We created the hashtag of Black Lives Matter in order to engage people on the ground. I think we're seeing a more millennial activists rise up in these days and times to speak out against injustices. I see glimmers of hope, but I don't see a lot of change. No change. Yet, years ago, the civil rights movement in America, with similar tactics, similar goals, brought about epic change. Marshall Gantz worked in the civil rights movement with the SNCC. He now lectures at Harvard University on how social movements can mobilize and be effective. Nonviolence is not non anything, and it requires constant creativity and innovation. It's like uh, David figuring out how to deal with Goliath. Civil rights movement excelled in that way. The trick is to recognize how your people, how their resources can turn into sources of power. The Montgomery bus boycott, where everyone had feet. And so by walking to work, instead of getting on the bus, they could become collectively powerful. They were threatened and intimidated, arrested, convicted and fined. And still they walked. In the rain and the sun and the dark of night, they walked with God and shunned the buses. In the bus boycott itself, when the African-American taxi companies agreed to take people to work at a very reduced rate, the city council made that illegal. So then they developed a carpool. It was a marvel of quick organization. A network of cars, old and new, of trucks and taxis, reached out across the city and carried people where they wanted to go. There is this constant sort of innovation because you're adapting all the time in a movement. You're always learning. Somebody tell me what can I do? The March on Washington was very important at the time. The whole point was to say... We've had enough of freedom, freedom. It's time for freedom now. And actually, Dr. King's speech, which is often described as the I Have a Dream speech, the actual title of it was The Fierce Urgency of Now. Now is the time. And if you listen to the whole thing, you'll hear him articulate the nightmare of segregation before the dream of possibility. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content, will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. One of the things that's happened is that social media has made it easier to mobilize without organizing. So one of the challenges today is to understand the continued need for organization 
to go with mobilization. It's one of the reasons we have so many moments, not movements. Moments, not movements. Social media may be corroding activism by enabling fly-by-night moments without deep roots or meaningful organization. Still, it's not all bad. Those moments can have unprecedented results. They can bring a global spotlight to events that would previously have spent years getting onto the international agenda. This was demonstrably instrumental to Hong Kong's umbrella revolution. 22nd September. Thousands of Hong Kong students took to the streets to protest against reforms to the electoral process. We won't go home. We won't. Not only me, all of us here. The changes were seen to be highly restrictive and suggested the Chinese Communist Party would pre-screen electoral candidates. The Hong Kong protesters used Twitter, Facebook and a variety of chat platforms to mobilise. In just the first few days, over a million tweets were shared. 26th September. The crowd seems to be getting anything bigger and angrier. They're stretched all the way in that direction, thousands. Overnight, the police arrive. They pepper spray the crowds and arrest protesters. If you want to stay in the front line, you may attack the bus, the pepper spray and, and the tea cans by the police. Please protect yourself. But the protesters find a solution, the umbrella. Overnight, that umbrella, from uh, being a household item, suddenly transformed into a symbol of defiance. And the umbrella did more than that through social media. It became the defining image of this movement. The logo of a yellow umbrella went viral around the world. Visual artist Casey Wong explains why this was instrumental to the movement. The only way of protecting ourselves is get more media attention internationally. So hopefully uh, we can apply pressure that way because uh, we have tried creating that pressure from bottom up and it's not working. If it sometimes looks as though social media is undermining organisational capacity, that's not the whole story. In Ukraine's uprising known as Euromaidan, protesters built concrete, practical networks overnight. In November 2013, the government of Ukraine was about to sign an agreement with the European Union. But the plan was put on hold later that same month, supposedly due to pressure from Russia. That evening, a small group of students decided that they would not accept this. On the 21st of November, Euromaidan began. Camps were set up in Independence Square in Kiev. It soon stretched beyond the capital to towns across the country. The camps and civil disobedience lasted through December and into January. After a series of violent demonstrations that left 100 people dead... President Yanukovych signed a settlement agreement. Researchers say it will go down in history as the first truly successful social media uprising because of how online platforms were used to coordinate resources. One of the major benefits was the fact that it allowed for a much faster turnaround of information. Tetiana Lukot is a Ukrainian researcher of digital activism who witnessed the aftermath of Euromaidan. It afforded quite a lot of people, the opportunity to be part-time revolutionaries, so to only spend a certain amount of their time during the day or the night. So what they would do is get on the phone and coordinate, say, firewood or medical help 
And I think it also opened the gates much wider and resulted in many more people joining the protest effort than otherwise would have. I mean, I guess that kind of that's a, quite a background function, though, isn't it? I mean, in the end, is there any substitute for bodies on the streets? It's maybe even the wrong way to ask the question. I mean, we certainly need bodies on the street, but then you also need somebody to film the bodies, to live stream the bodies. And I think that's where social media actually played a huge part. They emphasized, you know, that this protest was not just limited to the city center in Kiev, Ukraine. I mean, were there drawbacks to using social media? Social media is accessible to everyone. So just as, you know, the protesters can use them, the government can also attempt to co-opt some of the power by sending out a, a pretty scary text message to everyone in a particular location, which they did in January 2014. Everybody who was in the city centre got a message saying, you've been registered as a participant of a mass protest. Would the protests have happened without social media? To say that social media was the only thing that made Euromaidan possible would be wrong, because there is a history of organising. The only thing that Euromaidan changed was that now a lot more people are aware of the power of civil society and civic organizing and volunteering that will result in real change, no matter how small. Facebook wasn't acting alone. Protest was an integral part of Ukrainian civil society. Social media simply greased the wheels of a very powerful train. And that's quite a reassuring thought, that bodies on the street provide the power that they have through the ages. The internet just does the grunt work of making sure those bodies go to the right streets. There's one movement, though, that defies this idea. UK Uncut. This was a chain of coordinated demonstrations across the UK, protesting cuts to public services and corporate tax avoidance. They took over businesses allegedly avoiding tax by occupying their high street branch, and they sent out the call through online platforms. Ladies and gentlemen, we are from UK Uncut. And we are out protesting against corporate tax avoidance. Members of UK Uncut stormed Topshop's flagship store in central London. I was in Topshop and I started looking around and seeing a few familiar faces, but everybody was looking very intently at handbags and making sure they weren't making eye contact with each other. A guy started taking his jacket off, and underneath he had a sports stop on with sort of a number in the front, like he was going to run a race, and he had a, a whistle around his neck, and he started blowing it loudly, and that was the signal. From Leeds to London, in Cardiff, Glasgow and Birmingham, protesters have demonstrated under the banner of UK Uncut. Pretty incredible to have gone from absolutely nothing, a dozen people sitting in a pub two months ago, to 55 actions across the UK involving literally thousands of people. Rosie Rogers was a key activist in UK Uncut. Rosie, what's your reaction listening to that? Oh, I just wish I had a time machine. I could go back and be on those streets right now. Can you describe a few things that you were involved with? At the very beginning, when we kind of started transforming tax-avoiding shops into different services that were being cut by the government at the time. So, for example, we went into Starbucks's all over the UK and turned them into creches. And we had kids there, we had mums, we had blankets and sofas and kind of loads of kids' toys and paint. It was an amazing atmosphere. And do you regard UK Uncut as a success? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think tax avoidance was really on the radar before Uncut came on the scene. 
And now we have governments all over the world fighting to be the most aggressive on tax avoidance. Could this have happened without social media? Are we looking at the first direct channel from social media to governments? I don't think Uncut would have been such a success without social media. It could have had a big presence in London, but it wouldn't have had such a presence all over the UK. So, yeah, I think it was a really big kind of game changer. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Because Westminster governments find it very easy to ignore actions that happen in London, paradoxically, because they can write off as a metropolitan elite. But once something's kind of seeded in a more broad UK context, I think they do find it more difficult. Yeah, I think it's much harder for MPs to ignore what's happening all over the country, especially if it's in their constituency. And it's also really interesting because at the time it was quite hard for the media to ignore because if journalists see something trending on Twitter back in 2010, they're not going to ignore it. So what do you think of online activism now? Has it moved on since the UK Uncut days or could you replicate that action? I think there is a bit of a problem now. I think people see themselves as activists if they're clicking to sign a petition or if they're retweeting something. You know, that's not going to cut it these days. I think people have kind of got a bit lazy. You've got to get involved in campaigns. You've got to do the hard work. And I think people have got, you know, a bit of a false sense of how change happens. We've got to be creative. We've got to try new stuff. You look at the anti-Trump movement. What have we seen so far? A couple of emergency demos outside Westminster and a march. It is so dull. It had no impact. So I think we've got to get more creative. We've got to get clever. We've got to get united. And we've got to get out of London. UK Uncut has had some victories that protest naysayers would have insisted were impossible. Yet Rosie's point doesn't go away. Online platforms are making us lazy. I put that to David Babs, the executive director of 38 Degrees, arguably the most active petition website in the UK. Petitions, I think, are powerful in two ways. Firstly, they demonstrate a degree of public support for something. But Mm. secondly, a petition serves as an entry point for people into that campaign who can then participate in further activities, whether that's going to see the council to deliver the petition or writing to their councillor or donating to fund further tactics, all those kind of things they are aided by the petition. Very few campaigns, I think, in the history of campaigning have been won with one solitary tactic. I wouldn't claim that digital petitions save the world on their own. I don't think they ever have and I don't think they ever will. We can't have policy made only by people who make it onto the streets. Yet nor can you cede civic direction to people clicking on a petition. Returning to Danish psychologist Anders Kolding Jorgensen, he thinks completely differently. He conducted an experiment on the authenticity of online social movements. Back in uh, 2009, I was teaching a course in internet psychology at University of Copenhagen. And back then, Facebook was just emerging as something more than a, a toy. So I decided that I would try to take Facebook into my teaching and do a little experiment with it with my class. And I said, use the psychology you learn here and try to be the one who has the group with the most members when the course is over. And I participated. I decided to see if people actually, you know, were going to fact check these things or if they just reacted uh, more spontaneously. So I created a group for a fictitious course against the demolition of a very well-known Danish fountain called the Stork Fountain in the middle of Copenhagen. 
And very quickly, it went totally viral. And in less than 10 or 12 days, it had more than uh, 25,000 members, which was really a very high number back in 2009. And this left you quite cynical in the first instance about online movements. I think that the cynicism that I was left with related to the term clicktivism. Everybody just wants to join a cause, but it actually doesn't make any difference. But I think that it's not true that movements online don't make differences. They make huge differences. But I'm still cynical in the way that I like to see all these online movements like clouds, for instance. I mean, back in the days, you would have a movement consisted of people who had a physical location and you joined them by a membership and, and all these movements are, are completely changed. If you look at them, they don't have a center. They just have a, a Facebook administrator and a lot of people who just happen to, to click at them when it passed them in the Facebook feed because it confirmed their own already existing views. Or, in layman's terms, social media is great for practicalities. Platforms like Facebook allow you to get people to the right place in a short time. Put out calls for what you need, whether it's stewards or medics. Generate momentum, which in the old days we used to call enthusiasm. But the passions it generates are a little flaky. Jacqueline van Stelenkenberg, coming from a different angle, finds reason to celebrate. If people go to a demonstration, they are mobilized. They start to talk about the issue. So what happens is that their individual grievances become shared, politicized issues. In this process, people define clearer what the issue is, what they are angry about. Imagine, for instance, that you want to take a banner issue. Then in a few words, you should be able to convey the message. What is it precisely that makes you so extremely upset? In this process, people really strengthen their belief that something is very, very wrong and they want to do something about it. This is hard to say, but especially when you're asking for something specific, protests generally don't work. You take your energy to the streets, it exists there in this glorious moment, and then it dies. It feels a little bit worse than failure. Like utter powerlessness. The march against the Iraq war is the not-so-shining example. I remember arriving that morning and being incredulous at the number of people there. I saw Ray Fines on Waterloo Bridge and thought, well, obviously, everybody's here. Why shouldn't he be? Even as we marched, reached Hyde Park, heard the speeches, began to thin out, I already knew that it would be ignored. Because, ultimately, we live in a parliamentary democracy. Why would a million people out, shouting in unison, however joyfully, be heeded any more than the millions not out, not shouting? Some points are worth fighting even though you know you will lose. But losing after that, after a march in which the shared sense of the injustice of that war was so palpable... Well, it did rather take the wind out of our sails. I will not be party to such a course. Prime Minister Tony Blair made the war his moral crusade, and openly so. 
This is the time for this House, not just this government or indeed this Prime Minister, but for this House to give a lead. To show that we will stand up for what we know to be right. To show that we will confront the tyrannies and dictatorships and terrorists who put our way of life at risk. The protests failed to shake his conviction, even though they happened globally and in staggering numbers, including Adelaide in Australia. Activist Gary Cushway was in attendance there. Hundreds of thousands of people. It was the second biggest gathering of people in Adelaide ever. Having that didn't seem to affect the end result. I mean, it felt good. It was a good thing to do. It was good to meet people, like-minded people. So there were positives in it. It was a great day, a great energy built up. But did it achieve anything? They went ahead with the war anyway. That's how I feel about protest right now. I mean, you can have a win, even if you do. Time drifts on, governments change. It does feel a bit futile at times. But Claire Ryder from the UK activist group Bridges Not Walls reflects on it differently. I attended several rallies and demonstrations against the war in Iraq, including the 2003 March on Washington. Although the war in Iraq was still devastating, I believe it would have been far worse if there hadn't been public outcry. Protesting works. I protest for different reasons at different times. Sometimes it's to show solidarity and to let a vulnerable population know that I will defend them. Sometimes it's to encourage people who are silent on an issue to become active and let them know they won't be alone. Often I protest to give a backbone to politicians. When we are silent, it's much easier for them to be silent. When protesting is unsuccessful, it's usually because there wasn't the right type of protesting for that situation. A variety of methods were used to protest against Iraq. Who could forget Brian Hoare camping for almost 10 years? He set up a makeshift shelter in Parliament Square as a one-man political protest. He would promote his slogans through a megaphone and survived on food brought by supporters. Oh, I fast, pray, protest here until bombs, killing, sanctions on Iraqs, innocent children and people are stopped. The inconvenient truth about any protest movement is that it needs people who are prepared for it to take over their lives. One of the most dramatic examples was Greenham Common. We must have Often written off now as a bunch of unwashed peaceniks, these women upended their lives to challenge the build-up of nuclear weapons. A wigwam caravan sit-in which, through the hardest of winters, froze into a siege. In 1987, the USA and Russia signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which eliminated all nuclear and conventional missiles. Numerous critics around the world stated that the camp had nothing to do with the treaty, including base commander Butch McGeehy. A culmination of things brought down the Soviet Union. So did the women have any impact? No, they didn't, not at all. Mary Caldor was central to that peace movement in the 1980s, and is now Professor of Global Governance at LSE. What do you see as the success of Greenham Common? I think what Greenham Common did was an incredibly visible symbol of the opposition to cruise missiles. And remember, there were camps in the other places. 
where cruise missiles were going to be deployed, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium and Italy. But Greenham was the most visible of this. But you heard in those clips, and you've heard, I'm sure, countless times, people saying that Greenham Common made no difference at all and furthermore slowed down the, the end of the Cold War. I think it, that's complete nonsense. The United States would never have proposed the zero option, which meant getting rid of all medium-range missiles in Europe, if it hadn't been for the peace movement. And how do you know that? The reason I know that is it was called the zero option. And the day the zero option was announced, I actually met Reagan's nuclear advisor. And he said, we got that from your banners, the ones that said no crews, no Pershing, no SS-20s. And when Gorbachev came to power, he was very influenced by the peace movement arguments. And the peace movement arguments were, you know, you can destroy the world with 10 nuclear weapons, so why have 100? Right. And you don't think it's because maybe the women didn't achieve what we think, what we want to think they achieved? Well, I think what they contributed to was the end of the Cold War. They did make very many concrete achievements. And also, there was a broader sense in that it changed a lot of people's way of thinking. It, I think it was profoundly transformative. If you ask me what was really important about Greenham, well, it was that contribution to changing the wider discourse about peace and human rights. Does it change the discourse by changing the individuals involved in it, or does it change the discourse by influencing the audience? Well, I think it's much more by influencing the individuals involved in it. And so I think what's terribly important is I think all movements need a sort of protest bit through which people can engage and which can raise the issues in a stark form. What fascinates me there is that history will always be told through people, but successful protest will always be collective. So maybe protest will never get its rightful place in history books. Yeah, I think so. And I feel that about the end of the Cold War. Nobody ever tells this story except for me. <laughs> and actually, this was what E.P. Thompson said. We're changing the Cold War at the moment, but it will be taken over by the politicians and our role will be completely forgotten. The way a protest movement changes the popular discourse is immeasurable. Concrete results are often very hard to prove. But it is striking to me how many causes that seemed oddball when I was growing up, environmentalism, LGBT rights, nuclear proliferation, are now considered completely mainstream, absolutely common sense. If these protesters didn't change the atmosphere, I would be fascinated to know who did. Part of the problem may lie in the media coverage around protests. Douglas MacLeod, a journalism professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, believes that to be the case. The goals are to somehow usually to change policy. And I think that's one of the limitations of mainstream media is they impose this kind of win or lose criterion. And I think that protest groups also have many other kinds of more tacit or latent goals, things like building solidarity, providing avenues for expression, networking, getting like-minded people together, and also sort of learning both amongst the movement members and helping give the public some insights into their particular perspective. 
Douglas thinks media coverage unconsciously delegitimizes protest. It's a theory he calls the protest paradigm. The protest paradigm is kind of a, a way that journalists go about constructing a news story about social protest. One of those characteristics is to kind of focus on the events and actions. So acts of violence, conflicts with police, number of arrests become very easy to cover in what we call episodic coverage. It's this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it's very easy to defend your objectivity as a journalist by saying, I'm just telling you what exactly happened. By contrast, if you talk about some of the thematic coverage that gets into the issues involved, and I think that's the way most social movements would like to see themselves covered, but the media will shy away from thematic issue-oriented coverage because they're worried about seeming partisan. So instead, the fallback is kind of focused on physical conflict arrests rather than the conflict of ideas. The media creates a narrow frame of success which puts most protests into the category of colossal failure. Then the protesters themselves often seem to internalise this failure, which drains their civic energy and makes you wonder whether it would have been better not to try at all. The journalist and activist Robin Page took part in the Countryside Alliance march in 2002. It has left him with a cynical view. In essence, the people marching here today say they want fairness and justness of treatment from the government in its handling of rural issues. The march organisers say that if they don't get it, the countryside won't simply view the government with deep suspicion. It may well erupt in fury. Robin Page, what was your experience of being on that? I was proud to be on the march and I genuinely thought, completely foolishly, that getting so many people with a rural voice would make a difference. It didn't make any difference at all. Everybody was extremely well behaved and so it was totally ineffective. Why do you think it was ineffective? Because Because I think we should have been much more militant. I don't mean violence. Hmm. I would have liked to have had rolling roadblocks on the M25... I believe that would have shut London down and inconvenience to commuters, inconvenience to distribution, inconvenience to the police because they wouldn't know where the next rolling roadblock was going to appear. Well, if you were going to give advice to somebody in a protest movement today, what would you say? I would say get your facts, be very careful about how you launch yourselves and to try and get local councillors and MPs on side. But overall, protest, I genuinely believe, to be a lost cause. And as a district councillor for 40 years, I saw that localism was a farce and I resigned from the council. What is going on is so driven by a parliament that doesn't respond to the wishes and views of the electorate. So hang on a second, let me get this straight. Local government is rubbish, central government is rubbish, protest movements are rubbish. How does the citizen bring about social change? I don't think they can. I simply don't see any movement today, a movement wanting change, I cannot see a march having any effect at all. So perhaps we should pack up and go home. 
But underneath Robin's doughty disappointment is something more muscular. Robin believes the Countryside Alliance failed because they weren't obstructive enough. That theory echoes the work of Oxford University professor Michael Biggs. Well, of course, it always depends, and you can, no tactic guarantees success, but certainly being willing to take costs and being willing to suffer for the cause can be an effective part of a social movement's repertoire of protest. And is it effective because it makes the outside world take you more seriously or believe in your authenticity, or is it effective because it strengthens the movement from within? Both of those points. So the one audience is the public, and that is you, by willing to sacrifice for the cause, you are showing that you really are enduring a severe injustice. When you're actually willing to go to prison or go on hunger strike or even to kill yourself, that gives a, a really strong signal. And the other audience, as you point out, is your own community. When there you're saying, if I'm willing to endure this, then therefore they will be more likely to contribute to the cause as well. Let's talk about the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, Thich Quang Duc who invented self-immolation when he set himself on fire in 1963. Associated Press photographer Malcolm Brown was shooting a roll of film of the event. He uh, instantly was enveloped in flame. I just kept shooting and shooting and shooting, and, uh, and that protected me from the horror of the thing, the, the smell of the, of the burning flesh, the, the expression of anguish. He never cried out, but his face did become anguished. Can we trace the impact that he had on his own cause? Yes, he had a tremendous impact because so many Buddhists in South Vietnam were inspired by his action and it got huge attention in the United States. And President Kennedy of the United States said, we've got to stop these burnings. We can't have any more burnings. The United States essentially allowed a coup to take place and overthrew the regime before the year was out. Was it partly because it, that had never been done before? It had never been done before, and it was clearly staged for an international audience. So they made sure that there were American and French reporters present to watch, and the monks even chanted, when they chanted their demands, they actually chanted them in English. It was staged to maximise the publicity, but it was not a fake event. It was a very real event, and it demonstrated his absolute commitment. And do you think that... Part of the problem of protest is the proof of authenticity. Yes. With public opinion polls, the reason why you would have a big demonstration is less obvious because everybody knows how many people support this or support that cause. But that what public opinion surveys can't demonstrate is the extent of people's commitment. And that's when other sorts of tactics, including going to prison or hunger striking, become, become oh, particularly important. Oh, I see what you important. mean. So has your work made you think that regular protests always have something missing. I think uh, either you have to inflict costs on your opponent or you have to inflict some costs on yourself. Merely demonstrating is relatively ineffective. This leaves me personally very conflicted. I believe passionately in many things, but would never self-harm in their service. I don't even particularly want to be arrested. Fortunately, Douglas MacLeod disagrees with Michael. The problem is the people who are engaged in the protest, the ones that get the predominant amount of attention are the ones that are engaged in the violent activity. And sometimes that attention can really irritate the members of the protest group that are less inclined to engage in those kind of activities. And we've seen in several instances where those protest coalitions literally fall apart on the spot because of the infighting that's created. Essentially, are you saying that violence in a protest is always unhelpful? The problem is it tends to trigger public backlash against the group. People stop listening. If you had a cause that you believed in passionately, how would you go about 
organizing a protest on its behalf. Essentially, what you employ is kind of like the tactics that are used by advertising and public relations professionals, where you set objectives, you formulate strategies and tactics for achieving those objectives. So you're starting to identify target markets. Who are the people that are most likely to respond to our messages? You don't want to sell to people who aren't going to buy your product under any circumstances. This sounds very cynical to me, though. This sounds like social marketing rather than social movement. It sort of depends on how much change you're seeking. I mean, if you're seeking change that is largely going to be accepted, then I think you can afford to be more organic. But to the extent that you really want to challenge the status quo to have an influence and a wider visibility, you do have to kind of think strategically about it. This digs into the issue of authenticity. If protest is too easy, nobody believes in it. If it's too hard, it becomes the preserve of an activist hardcore, just another elite who don't need to go to work or pick anyone up from nursery. If the message is too complicated, it can't gather momentum. If it's too simple, it's probably wrong. If you ask for something concrete, that very demand is undemocratic. If you ask for something broader, more nebulous, who's to say when you got it? And yet, there is a blueprint emerging for how to make a protest meaningful, a tip sheet... Be prepared to be disruptive, but in a playful rather than a violent way. Setting fire to things may be arresting, but it's not very original. Use the energy built in protest to sustain the cause, because if you're asking for anything significant, it's likely you'll be ignored for a very long time. Use social media to get attention and to get practical help. Don't rely on it for everything, nor believe that 50,000 likes makes a movement. Be strategic and agile. Never ask for too little or expect too much, at least not too fast. And understand what you're up against. To be disregarded by a democratically elected leader is different to the reaction of an authoritarian regime. Tamila Lankina from the LSE studies how protests in tough regimes are repressed and eliminated. She takes the example of the 2011 Russian protests where activists attempted to fight what they believed was a fraudulent election result. At the start of the protest wave, we observe quite amicable dynamics between the protesters and the police, perhaps because they received such an instruction from above, from the national leadership. And the media, of course, covered that couple of months later, as it gets to the presidential elections where Putin gets elected to yet another term and the protests continue, we see very different dynamics between the police and the protesters. And according to the allegations of opposition groups, there were provocative tactics used and strong arm tactics. And then the media, in turn, pick up on these kind of incidents that would be construed as violent and kind of magnify them so that the broader publics then get a message that going out to the streets is a bad thing. Does that have an ongoing effect on civil liberties generally? Does it mean people will be less likely to join a different march or less likely to mobilise on a different cause? Well, activists actually have learned to draw lessons from such events of repression. And what we see is people 
simply withdraw into other forms of activism, neighborhood activism, where they protest against corruption or illegal construction or pursue environmental protests. But it's still good for the protest movement because they're still building and reinforcing networks. They're still kind of practicing their organizational skills. And when the opportunities for protest open up again. For instance, if a new leader is elected who is kind of more politically liberal and more open to activism, then we very well might see the same people moving out again from under the shadows and into kind of more politicized forms of activism. There is one final movement that merits exploration. Occupy Wall Street. It was a global uprising against capitalism and austerity in which protesters physically occupied the financial districts of their cities by camping out. Springing up in Wall Street, it rapidly spread to nearly 2,600 cities, from Bangkok to Caracas. For the last number of weeks, a group of loosely organized protesters known as Occupy Wall Street have camped out in New York's financial district. One of the biggest demonstrations is in Rome, where there have been reports that riot police have fired tear gas. If, for example, these protests continue and the number of the people that attend them continue, they can't be ignored. In the end, of course, they could be ignored and were. There will be people lining up to call this movement a failure. But Michael White sees it slightly differently. He was the co-founder of the movement and has been an activist since he was 13 years old. So Occupy Wall Street failed, but in failing, it revealed something very important about contemporary activism, which is that we've been chasing an illusion. And so I think the greatest gift of Occupy Wall Street is to allow activists to craft a new vision for how to achieve social change. So if you were to talk to future activists today, if they were going to have a set of priorities, what would it be? What we have right now is we have a crisis of sovereignty where there is no real direct way for the people in the streets to kind of manifest a higher form of sovereignty over their governments that forces their governments to do what they want. Basically, if activism is a game, then the goal of the game is to capture sovereignty, to capture as much of it as possible, and then to give the sovereignty to as many people as possible. And then once you realize that, okay, so protesting in the streets doesn't grant us sovereignty. I mean, it may have in the past, but it doesn't today. Then that really opens your eyes to new to new strategies. Every time you protest, something does happen. It's like throwing a pebble into a lake. It, it creates ripples for sure. But what I'm saying is if we content ourselves with these positive things down there, we will lose. Like we could be doing protests for the next decade and have no fundamental change. One of the things that's happened to contemporary activism, which has been overall very destructive, is we've had a lowering of our horizon of possibility. Activism has stopped orienting in the correct direction, even within Occupy. I mean, I think that the reason why occupiers couldn't put forward demands and stuff like that is because we were actually afraid of governing. Everything from the Arab Spring to the Bolsheviks, maybe the reason we're quite reticent about taking power is that it doesn't seem to go that well. See, that is the core issue. We have started to see revolution as something that's not actually desirable. As genuine activists, we need to acknowledge that the danger of revolution, that revolutions always have these dangerous excesses, but also realize that human civilization only moves forward through the process of revolution. It's like entering a sports race and not wanting to win. Absolutely. It's like playing football and all you care about is like getting cheers from the audience and not scoring goals. We celebrate ourselves. We're like, look, we had a women's march. Four million people marched. And it's like, okay, but... Imagine if the Bolsheviks had had four million people marching and then just be like, well, let's go home. 
Even though Mary Caldor's thoughts on the campaign for nuclear disarmament were the most inspiring for me, Michael White's position feels the most pragmatic. In protest, you learn about what matters, what you'll fight for, who's with you. But if you want to take it forward, you have to find a power beyond the force of a crowd, which is, unless things go wrong, metaphorical. And you have to take your cause to the people who aren't yet with you. Ultimately, you hear a lot of rueful admission of failure from activists, but you rarely meet anyone who wishes they hadn't acted. Protest movements always start life at the edges of normality, and that can be quite an isolating place to be. However self-evident it seems to you that Muslims should be allowed free passage to major continents, sometimes you need to stand among five or ten or five hundred thousand people who feel the same in order to keep going. The other thing that strikes me is that each generation has its own rules of activism, and they have to believe that they're different from what went before, otherwise they wouldn't bother. But there are lessons that we could learn intergenerationally from one another. Without those, we're losing a lot of muscle memory on what is often a very similar exercise. Civil rights organiser and lecturer Marshall Gantz has recognised this, and he makes sure his students are aware. I often end my talks and teaching with these lines from a song recorded by Judy Collins uh, in the 1960s, Pass It On, and it goes like this. Freedom doesn't come like a bird on the wing, doesn't fall down like the summer rain. Freedom, freedom is a hard-won thing. You have to work for it, fight for it, day and night for it, and every generation has to win it again. That was Long Road to Change. Presented by Zoe Williams, it was a whistle-down production for BBC Radio 4. Zoe wrote a guide to practical ways to keep the protest going following the Women's March earlier this year. And that's how Anishka Sharma, the documentary's producer, first heard of her. They really wanted to work the story and all the history around the idea that whilst online social protests are easy to organise... They're hard to sustain. Anishka says that past movements, like the civil rights movement, could have benefited hugely from the technology we have today. So why isn't it more useful in providing long-lasting effects now? It's left me with so many conflicting thoughts about the success and power of protesting. That idea of patting yourself on the back for simply marching without really seeing any outcomes the constant need to innovate and change the methods of protest, and whether we're watering down the aim of a protest by simply sending a tweet and thinking, yep, that's taken care of. Let me know what you thought of Long Road to Change. The hashtag to use is R4Seriously. And if you're looking for more stories of politics and passion, head over to bbc.co.uk forward slash seriously. I'm Rihanna Dillon. Join me next time for another seriously interesting story told a little sideways.
This is the BBC.